This is Think Out Loud. I'm Allison Frost. When Portland writer Tova Danovich began keeping chickens in her backyard in Portland just a few years ago, she didn't realize that what she was actually starting was research. That research ultimately grew into becoming a full-fledged book, reflecting on the role the birds play in the larger culture and economy. From those first few eggs she ordered by mail hatched her book, Under the Henfluence, inside the world of backyard chickens and the people who love them. Danovich shares photos of her ever-changing backyard flock, Loretta, Emma Lou, Peggy, and more on the chickens' Instagram at Best Little Hen House. Tova Danovich joined us to talk about how and why she says she became obsessed with these birds and their place in our lives. I asked her how she thought about the kind of in-between place chickens occupy. Not quite pets, not quite livestock. So when I got chickens, I had been doing a lot of food and agriculture reporting for many years primarily. Um, And people were really into local food in the early 2000s. I don't know if you remember this, but, uh, you know, know your farmer, know your food was this bumper sticker that you saw in every other car, it seemed like. And people were really interested in growing food, whether from animals or plants where they know where it came from and, and how that was was raised and, you know, the effects it was having on the planet. Um, I was living in New York City for a while at the time, so having chickens was not quite as possible. Uh, But when I moved to Portland, I thought getting chickens just seemed like a really wonderful idea. And, you know, who doesn't like eggs in the backyard? They come in all different colors. So it's not just the white or brown you get from the grocery store, but you can have green eggs and chocolate covered colored eggs and speckled eggs. And it's very exciting. Um, So I went down that road thinking that, you know, kind of like a, a crop, they were just going to be animals that I kept and they would pay rent in in return by giving me eggs. Um, And then I really fell for them. And and (laughs) here we are five years later. Five years later. Did you, in in truth, though, did you pick Portland in part because of this zeitgeist (laughs) that includes having, you know, chickens being, you know, normal to have chickens in your backyard? You know, it probably had something to do with it. Uh, At the time, we were kind of going through a checklist of places where my husband and I might want to live. And I I lived in the Pacific Northwest for a while growing up, and I always really loved it. Seattle, of course, is is very expensive. And and Portland is lovely and has all of the things that we wanted, um, including people who love dogs a lot, which we also (laughs) have. So it was probably more dog-focused than (laughs) chicken-focused, but they were a happy bonus. You can be a dog person and a chicken person. You can. There's a good over overlap between the two. And this lifelong dream, which you talk about at the beginning of your book, um, to have chickens, and when you talk to your grandmother about it, um, she actually gave you some food for thought. Am I right (laughs) in terms of the background? Yeah, so my my family, you know, back in the day, um, they are Midwestern, you know, immigrants who came and, and settled in the Midwest and were farmers. Uh, and they, like many farmers, kept chickens in addition to the dairy that they had in, in North Dakota initially. And when I was telling my grandma about these chickens that I was going to bring home, she started telling me all of these stories I'd never heard before about how her mother had actually raised chickens for what was known as egg money. Um, this was essentially how women, especially in the Midwest, paid for all of the household expenses was through chickens. Oh, just um, those the just, little household expenses. Yeah, just all 
all the household expenses. So the farm would pay for things like, you know, rent and the mortgage, but it was often chickens and women's work, which, you know, still undervalued, uh, that paid for things like food and clothes and groceries uh, and was this really interesting bit of history, both at large and in my family that I, I hadn't known anything about. Um, so my grandma had all these stories about helping her mom, you know, process chickens, collect eggs, um, bring them to market in town. Uh, and when I told her I was getting, you know, three backyard chickens, she was a little appalled because, you know, you can't you can't have three chickens. <laughs> because that's too few. Yeah, it's right? not enough chickens. Um, and, you know, she she had a point. <laughs> I, I did notice on the City of Portland website that uh, four is allowed and actually encouraged. It says that you do not want to have just one. No, you don't. They're flock animals, so they are very social. Um, that's a pretty important thing to them to, to feel like they're a part of a group. And they have little friends and hierarchies. The term the pecking order, which many people are familiar with, that comes from chickens. So right. you you definitely want them in a group. Well, now you mentioned when you went to get three, you decided on three. Mm-hmm. How did you decide on that number and which ones to get? Um, you mentioned all the different kinds of, you know, shapes and sizes and colors of eggs, but that's also because there's so many different kinds of chickens, which I really hadn't given it much thought at all. And I I thought, oh, well, that that actually does make sense given the biodiversity uh, of the planet. But, um, But how in the world did you decide among so many choices? There were a lot of tabs up on my computer for for a long time. Um, They have, I wasn't familiar with this until I, you know, went down the the rabbit hole of trying to figure out what chicken I wanted. But um, they have these hatcheries, which are places where people, whether they're doing small farms or just a couple chickens in in the backyard in their suburban house, um, where often they go to to pick which chicken they want. Um, Of course, there are hundreds of chickens, and you may want a different kind of chicken if you live in a cold place versus a hot place. You might want a different type of chicken if you have a family and you want them to be really friendly or kind of fun and easy to handle um, versus ones that are really big or lay, lay a lot of eggs. So I was kind of shocked and overwhelmed by the sheer (laughs) variety. And it was really just a matter of closing one tab after another until I felt like I had a a good, um, you know, overview of of the chicken world uh, to bring back home. And that was a combination of chicken history. I got a Dominique, which was a, a barred black and white chicken, considered to be the oldest chicken breed in America, which felt, you know, nice bit of history. Um, and then I got one that laid olive eggs and and blue eggs, because why not have a little bit of fun with that? And uh, go ahead and continue to describe these uh, <laughs> these chickens, if you would, the first three, the first girls in yes. your flock and what you named them. So they were named Petty, Peggy, Betty, and Joan um, after characters from the TV series Mad Men, which was very big at the time. It gets rewatched often in our household. Um, and I had been having a lot of trouble coming up with, with names for the ladies. I wanted to name them after country music females initially, um, but it didn't feel like Just quite, didn't feel quite right. the right fit for, for these hens. So I was really thinking deeply about it. And I just loved the characters and and the variety, and it fit them so well. Um, Peggy today is the only one who is still with me in the flock. Um, She's five and a half now, which is getting old for a hen. And she, from the beginning, 
head hen of the flock. She was the first to do everything, the first to figure out food and water, hopping on top of the heat plate, escaping from the brooder where I didn't expect them to be escaping and just perching, looking at me when I went into the bathroom. And the brooder is? The brooder is the little box where you keep chicks when they are too young to um, maintain their own heat levels. So you need to put them in a a small enclosed area with a heat source um, if you don't have a hen to take care of them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and she's, she's still the head hen of the flock today. There is so much work that is involved. When you described how much work this was to raise the chickens from the hen, maybe this just indicates that I'm a very deeply lazy person. <laughs> but had, had I thought about actually having chickens, which has occurred to me from time to time in a very, very, very broad stroke kind of way, um, it, it, it would make me think twice or three times, given the amount of um, hands-on um, care that that uh, you have to take until how long before uh, the chicken will actually um, start laying eggs? It depends on the breed a lot, uh, but it can take up to six months. I thought it was a while. A lot of people are surprised by if you do get a production breed, the kind that's going to be laying, you know, close to 300 eggs a year or so, those tend to start laying a lot earlier than fancier breeds that maybe aren't going to lay as many eggs. Um, But a lot of people are surprised by that. And, you know, during the early days of lockdown, when people rushed out and and got chickens because they really wanted eggs, um, I was kind of looking at them a little suspiciously, wondering if they knew just how long of a commitment and time they would be waiting before they actually saw a return on their chicken investment. You you actually wrote, I saw an article that you wrote, uh, urging people uh, to rethink this, if that was why they were getting um, their their chickens to save money yes. um, for their <laughs> supply and then they're saving money. Um, can you, I wasn't going to get into this until a little bit later, but can you just, since we're on the topic now, why, it, it would, it seems like besides the six month waiting period, why isn't it true that, y- you know, y- you would save money owning chickens versus buying the eggs at the store? Economies of scale are a very real (laughs) phenomenon, Very real is the easiest way to put it. When you have a farm, even a lot of these cage-free places, which, you know, maybe your eggs are a couple dollars more than the very cheapest ones that are available in the grocery store, those hens are being housed in large warehouses where there can be tens of thousands, 100,000 chickens in one place. Uh, they are buying food according to those scales. You know, the housing gets reused year after year. It's very different if you live in a little suburb and you have six chickens, or even if you have 25 of them and you're trying to do a small egg business on the side, um, you just don't have all of those deductions that, that these people are getting by way of doing this as a giant industrial business model. It just doesn't pencil out. No, it doesn't at all. And, you know, part of the fun of having chickens is that you get to raise them well and with space, which is another thing that's not really possible to do in an industrial system. So I don't think you would want to raise them in such a way in your own backyard, close to your house, where you have to look at it all the time, um, in the same way that they do on these large farms. Um, so there, there are a lot of reasons why they cost so much. And, you know, when you see eggs in the grocery store that cost $12 a dozen, that's not far off from what the true cost of raising chickens where they get to have a 
a chicken's best life um, looks like and mm. still probably even a little cheap. And we'll get into more about the factory farming after we explore your backyard chicken <laughs> experience a little bit more. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Tova Danovich, Portland author of Under the Henfluence, Inside the World of Backyard Chickens and the People Who Love Them. You being the person who loves them most of all. <laughs> when did you know that this was actually something that you were going to dive into as an actual project? This was just more than a project, and there was so much here that you had to write about it. You know, it was pretty early on in the process that I started feeling like there was more here. Um, and some of it started even when the, they were just chicks who were living in the bathroom <laughs> across from my office in, in the little tote that I used as a brooder for them. And I would just walk in all the time and look at them, as you do when you're on deadline um, or have other <laughs> things you should be doing. It's much more fun to look at baby chickens. And I just had so many questions about what they were doing and why. And I love research. I'd gotten a lot of books on chickens from the library, which Portland, our library, a lot of books on chickens. It's wonderful. Um, but while they all had really great guides to raising chickens, they didn't really talk about who chickens were, you know, why they did the things they did. What was our history with chickens? Why do we have this connection um, with them that goes back, you know, 3,500 years ago now? We domesticated them. And as I started asking these questions and not finding a book that answered them in, in the way that I wanted to that really showed, you know, kind of this love for chickens that I was also discovering, not just myself, but many other chicken keepers had. Um, I realized that I guess I had to write the book I wanted to the, see in the world. <laughs> yeah, right. Write the book that you would like to read yeah, if it doesn't exist. Exactly. I think that's how a lot of people wind up writing their first book. <laughs> well, I, I love the way that you describe their behavior. And certainly there's some anthropomorphizing in there, just in the way you name the chickens, you know, and, and of course, so much more, some of, our, some of the animal behavior. But I was particularly moved by the two descriptions, the lost chick call and the egg song. And I wonder if you could take those in turn and uh, and just describe the, the lost chick call sort of, they're both self-explanatory <laughs> to some degree. But um, but tell me how you, when you first experienced that lost chick call, and it, it sounded like you were a little surprised by the intensity, and the loudness, the intensity, and the duration. That is all true. Um, yeah, you know, when you get baby chicks, especially hens, you're not really thinking about how much noise they make. But because they are flock animals, they're kind of constantly in communication with each other. And oftentimes, it's these very lovely, soft little cheeping burbles that they just make all the time. And it's so relaxing to just sit with them and listen. But if you pick one of these chicks up for a little bit because you want to handle them and they're adorable, <laughs> suddenly it turns into this just shrill shriek <laughs> um, that they do over and over and over until you put them down and they get to be with the rest of their friends again. And um, it was one of the first calls that I figured out because the cause and effect <laughs> of when it happened was very apparent to me. And, um, you know, I, I felt bad keeping them from their flock because of it. And it's something They that, all make this sound. Yes. Then not, not just the one that's removed, but the ones that are missing. Yeah, but mostly the one that's removed. And it's something that, you know, in the wild, when you have a hen with a brood of chicks that are following her, you know, just 
throughout the, the grass or in the forest and jungle where they live. You know, if one chick gets separated, it's important for them to be able to find find the rest or for the mother hen to be able to find them. So it's just a, a call that's kind of like, come and get me. <laughs> like, here, here I am. Um, so you want it to be loud. Right. And it is very loud. Uh, I could hear it sometimes when they would do it from, you know, a couple floors away of our house. And we have an old house, so the, the sound, uh, you know, preventing sound from traveling is hard. But... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was quite loud. And I was really surprised again, um, which I talk about in the book. But, you know, there is an overlap between people who like dogs and people who like chickens. But sometimes that doesn't end very well, um, as I discovered oh, yeah. when my dog got one of my my chickens um, early on. And it was just really heartbreaking. I mean, I I felt terrible the chickens felt terrible. It was just bad. Um, and this is also not uncommon if you keep chickens, whether it's dog, accident, something like things tend to happen. And that's that's probably the hardest thing about keeping these animals is that they, they can be really fragile. Um, but I was burying this, this chicken and all of a sudden I hear this sound coming from the yard and I realize that it's the lost chick call mm. and the rest of, you know, my, my little flock of the mad hens uh, were doing it. And it just broke my heart to hear the sound that I knew so well in this context. Um, and, you know, when we were talking about what <laughs> what the time was that I realized there was a book that really changed my relationship so deeply with these animals um, to realize that you know, they had these connections with each other that were so deep. And, you know, we talk about them as, as flock animals and the pecking order, but it's really different to see animals that have relationships enough with each other where they grieve. And how can I not respect those relationships mm. if they are so important within the flock? And it really made me look at chickens in a, in a very different way than I had before, even after months of, of having them mm. at that point. Did you think that you were going to eventually eat the chickens that you got when they would stop laying? Initially, yeah, that, that was my plan. Like I said, it was going to be a very transactional relationship, which is what a lot of people have. You know, after about two-ish years, they slow down their laying. Um, most industrial laying hens don't live very far past about 18 months, which is quite mm -hmm. short, though not as short as, as the meat chickens. Um, and so I assumed that was what I would do with them, because what could you possibly want with a chicken that isn't laying eggs all the time? Um, and then I realized that there, there was so much more to these animals than just their ability to produce breakfast. Um, and I joke that, you know, I'll be having a, a retirement home for chickens once they start getting older someday. But for now, it's still more eggs than I can ever possibly hope to eat. So. Yeah. And you, you, in fact, stopped eating chicken. Am I right? Yeah. You, you, you did. You were a chicken eater when you started this. And yes. then that the loss of that one chicken was one of the effects of that was that you made the choice that you would not eat chicken. That is correct. And then I switched to not eating any poultry because it's it's easy enough. Um, and yeah, it really you know made me rethink a lot of my relationship to how we use animals for food and animal agriculture at large. But 
Um, you know, the way we treat animals in farming has always been incredibly important to me. And it is just overwhelmingly evident that the way we treat chickens and poultry is by far the worst of any animal in our industrial uh, farming system. So that was something that was really easy for me to just make the choice not to be part of anymore. That was Tova Danovich, author of Under the Henfluence, Inside the World of Backyard Chickens and the People Who Love Them. We'll talk more with her after this short break. From the Gert Boyle studio, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Allison Frost. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Portland writer Tova Danovich. We're cracking open her new book, Under the Henfluence, Inside the World of Backyard Chickens and the People Who Love Them. Before the break, we began talking about the conditions commercially raised egg-laying chickens are kept in. I asked her to explain what the term free-range means and doesn't mean. Yeah, so egg labeling is very difficult to parse. Um, There's so many articles out there that are really great talking about, you know, if you want eggs raised from hens that have happy lives, this is what to look at. And it's so confusing from a consumer standpoint, which is very much on purpose. Um, But the main categories there are in the United States, the majority of our eggs still come from chickens that are raised in what are known as battery cages, about 70%. Um, And those are small cages where chickens get you know, the equivalent of like a sheet of paper of space for each one. And when they are old enough to start laying, they are put in these cages with a number of other chickens. They lay eggs and eventually they are too old. And those barns are quote unquote depopulated and the hens are all killed. Um, They're usually not even killed to go into the food supply um, because of the way the meat industry works with chickens um, and how cheap chicken meat is. It actually costs more money to slaughter these egg hens than you would get back in the meat. So it's just a waste of, you know, millions and millions of Mm. hens every year, Uh, not to mention all of the male chicks that are killed right after they are hatched and then sexed. And that's you know, a couple hundred million of them every year. A too. couple hundred million. Yes. Right. Wow. Um, so there, there is just an incredible amount of, of cruelty in that system. Uh, cage-free is becoming more popular. Um, about 30% of our eggs are raised cage-free now in the United States. Um, in those cases, the chickens typically live in kind of barn-like warehouses. They might have some places to perch or dust bathe, but essentially it's a lot of them crammed into a small area where they are still indoors all the time. Um, Overall, they have a little bit more space than chickens get in these battery cages, but it's not amazing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And you still have all the same things, like their beaks are trimmed to prevent them pecking from each other, which the beak is kind of the primary way that a chicken senses its environment. Um, And there are a lot of studies showing that, you know, they have a lot of nerve endings in those beaks, and that can be quite painful for them. Um, And, you know, they're they're still killed. The male chicks are still killed. All all of the same uh, general cruelties are still Mm. taking place. And what we have left over you know, people having chickens in the backyard, uh, your farmer's market chickens that might get time out on pasture. That's really a rounding error in the overall market for eggs in this country today. And one of the the reasons that that is so cruel is not just the discomfort, but also the prevention of um, letting the animal do the things that uh, that 
it needs to do to feel like an you know to feel normal like dust bathing now can you yeah. describe dust bathing a little bit for those of us yeah. that are non non chicken <laughs> <laughs> um dust bathing is really funny to witness in a chicken when i first got my flock and they did it for the first time they like flop in all these weird positions in some dirt that they decide is like the best dirt in the yard and i thought that they had died um, because they're just there contorted in this strange position and then you realize like oh they're moving around it's fine um but they rely on dust kind of the way that we use showers where instead of water that's rushing washing off all the the dirt and other particles they are getting the dust all up in their feathers um getting all the like oils parasites other things and then they shake all the dust out and that stuff goes with it so it's a really important part of the chicken staying healthy clean you know free of things like mites um, which can be really bad for them i mean how a chicken gets around in the world how they regulate their temperature is based on their feathers being in in good condition and dust bathing and preening um, are both major parts of that which you know they need access to dust bathing facilities and beaks for mm -hmm. for preening mm -hmm. and battery chickens another thing that you talk about um, later on in the book is they lose their feathers yeah altogether yeah mm -hmm. I'd like to go back to the egg calls yeah uh, because we kind of lost that <laughs> there because we got so involved in the uh, the lost chick call but one of the things uh, that you discovered as you were raising your own chickens at the beginning of the the, the, the journey was that they all had unique egg songs yeah and did that surprise you I didn't know the egg song existed I, until right. I got chickens. Um, I didn't know there was I, such a thing until I read your book. Everything was so surprising to me about them, which was why I found the subject so delightful. But um, the egg song, which I can talk about a little bit more. It's an interesting musical song. <laughs> um, but it is a sound that hens make after they have just laid an egg or after another member of the flock has laid an egg. And it's this very loud, discordant call. Um, I like to liken it to like a John Cage kind of symphony where it's like clearly there's something musical happening, but it's also <laughs> not like a Taylor Swift song musical. Um, it's, it's a little difficult. Uh, you have to think about it. But they all join in together. And it's so interesting because their voices, you know, I can tell Peggy's egg song versus Emmylou's egg song versus Franny's egg song their voices are all just a little bit different and they all kind of come together from different parts of the yard wherever they are when this kicks off and do this little two minute long egg song and two minutes for each egg I mean, I mean yeah and they don't do it every time and there's a lot of theories about what the egg song is is it like a celebration that they laid an egg is it based on trying to lure predators away from the nest like no one really knows mm. the purpose of the egg song it just is this thing that happens in flocks that they all like to do together when they are part of a flock um which i find really lovely and it's funny because I, I learned um, that, you know, the egg song and whether or not chickens do it is very cultural. So some people have flocks of chickens where 
no one likes to do the egg song mm. and you bring new chicks into that flock and they also are like, oh, we're, we're not doing the egg song. That's fine. We'll, we'll leave it. <laughs> um, but in my flock, they all do. And all of the newcomers do the egg song. I'm sure my neighbors would rather they, they were <laughs> one of the flocks that didn't. Um, but, you know, I still think leaf blowers are a lot worse uh, than chicken sounds. Um, so, yeah, it's it's quite lovely. And I think people are surprised uh, to learn learn that hens make this loud call because we usually think of like roosters and the cockadoodle do but this yeah. is the ladies equivalent to that if you're just joining us my guest is tova danovich portland author of under the Henfluence: inside the world of backyard chickens and the people who love them well, there are so many interesting things that I, you know, never, never knew existed. One of them being the show business of mm-hmm. uh, chicken shows, which I guess I, you know, I've been to county fairs and, you know, you see the, these competitions. So you went to the, I guess, the sort of mother of all of these <laughs> uh, shows for poultry, the Ohio National Show. Why did you want to go to this the, the ultimate competition. Why not something? I mean, if you're going to go to any of them, why not? Go to <laughs> the, the biggest ultimate? and best. Why yeah, not? Yeah, the, the biggest in the United States, certainly, um, though other countries have a, a very long tradition of chicken shows. Um, so when I was doing research for the book I mentioned earlier, I love research. So I was reading a lot about chicken history, and I found out about this thing called the hen fever that happened in Victorian England, where someone gifted the young Queen Victoria some very fancy chickens, and then everyone else had to have really fancy chickens, and they had to find a way to compare whose chicken was fancier than the other chicken. Um, so of course, they invented shows and things like breed standards where they could do that. And this all actually happened before things like dog shows. So the reason that we have something like Crufts or the Westminster Dog Show is because we had chicken shows first. It's fascinating. Um, and I loved it. And the prices for these chickens back in the 1800s were just astronomical, like $600 in 1850s money for two chickens, um, which people think that we get a little crazy about our backyard chickens today in 2023. But I'm like, look at the Victorians, please. Yeah. Um, so I really wanted to talk about that history. And I also wanted to see what was left of that today. Um, and that was how I wound up going to Ohio uh, in November. And it's very cold. Um, and the Ohio National takes place at, you know, the fairground off season. So it's just this these barns that are filled with not just chickens, but all kinds of poultry that people who breed these animals for show truck in from like all across the country to go to these shows. And they have friends that they see every year at the Ohio National and, and know each other. And if you have ever wanted to know, like, would I like this chicken breed versus another? And you don't want a lot of tabs, go to the Ohio <laughs> National or another big chicken show because you will see every single color, shape, size variety of chicken just about that is out there. Um, and for me, who already was really obsessed with chickens at that point, it was just a delight to walk around and, and see all these chickens and watch other people watching these these chickens too. Because of course, if you're going to a chicken show, you are probably a chicken person right. as well. I was going to say, there must be, uh, there's obviously an economic uh, angle here, but um, the people that are showing these chickens clearly love the animal. 
Yes. And and um and want to talk about it and have groups and they stay in touch, mm-hmm. right? If throughout throughout the year. Do you think that uh you might ever be tempted to <laughs> I don't think so. It's it's a lot of genetics once you get into it and then you have to think about, you know, breed standards and I I enjoy too much having one of every kind of chicken, um kind of like Pokémon. So, I just want to collect them and see all of their different personalities and and things like that. That's what I find really fun. But I'm very glad that there are people out there that breed these chickens so that people like me can have them and and bring them home sometimes. (laughs) Well, I don't want to let you go before talking about the latest addition um, to your to your flock, um, Thelma and Louise, who were rescue battery chickens. Mm -hmm. When you first decided that you wanted to do this, there wasn't a lot of options, right? Even though there's millions and millions of chickens that are killed. Where did you start looking? Yeah, so You know, these battery hens are killed at about 18 months. Um, And in the UK and some other countries, um, people have for several decades now been trying to go usually to smaller farms and rescue at least some portion of these hens and put them into homes um, with people who want to care for them, want to give these chickens really their their first chance at having a good life and seeing what it's like to be a chicken <laughs> in the world and like go in the sun and have dust baths and, and things like that, treats. Um, and so I started looking in the United States. We have a number of wonderful like farm animal rescue organizations and sanctuaries. And so I started emailing them to see if they ever rescued and, and adopted out these hens. Here and, in, in Oregon and Washington. Yeah, in Oregon and Washington specifically. Um, and of course, a lot of the egg industry is really still concentrated like California and in the Midwest. Um, but we have chickens mm-hmm. everywhere. Uh, there are always chickens who, who could use a home. And it took a really long time. I think about a year, which, you know, I wasn't emailing full time, but I would right. email one place, wait to hear back. They wouldn't have any chickens or they had at one point and now they didn't anymore. Um, and finally, I found this rescue in Washington that had just rescued 300 hens from somewhere in California. They couldn't tell me a lot about the farm other than they raised them in, in battery conditions. And that was on purpose because that information, the farm, yes. the farms don't want the, that Ex- information. Exactly. At least not this particular one. It must have been part, part of that specific deal. Um, but so I drove the, the very long way all the way up to Washington and picked up these two very scraggly red hens who had just been rescued think maybe three or four weeks ago at that point um and i drove them back home and they were missing feathers all over the place um louise who wasn't as badly de-beaked as thelma her beak looked almost normal um she didn't have any feathers at all on her neck and she looks a lot there is a breed of chicken called a turkin (laughs) that is bred to look like that and when i started posting pictures of her online people thought that she was actually a turkin um and i was like no no she's supposed to be a normal red hen she just looks terrible um and it took a good two years for their feathers to grow in the rest of the way. Um, and it was such a pleasure. I got them um, right in the middle of, you know, lockdown summer, nothing else was going on. And so I just spent so much time outside 
watching these chickens learn how to be chickens and see how their world was expanding this time when like all of our worlds had gotten so small. And it was just such a beautiful thing to get to watch. And I've been so excited to learn about more organizations that are actually rescuing and adopting out battery hens since then. Um, There are a number on the West Coast. There's someone in Missouri that's starting an organization like this. Um, And I think it's a really great way to get into chickens in a way that is really like giving something back to hens who we've never even like thought that we need it to give anything back to them. Mm -hmm. And I think if this book has shown me anything, it's that they have played such a deep and important role in human lives in so many ways. And they really enrich our lives, not just with, you know, eggs they provide and and things like that, but with their companionship and just their silliness and the way that they live their lives and just do these nice burbles when you're outside with them and are so relaxing. Um, And so I just really love having that as a way that we can do something nice for chickens who need it. Tova Danovich, thank you so much for this book, and thanks for joining us on Think Out Loud to talk about it. Yeah, thank you for letting me talk to you about chickens. (laughs) Tova Danovich is the author of Under the Henfluence, Inside the World of Backyard Chickens and the People Who Love Them. Finally today, producer Roly Hernandez joins me to read some of your recent feedback. Hey, Roly. Hey, Allison. Earlier this month, we spoke with Yalitza Vargas Boots about Hood River Library's new bookmobile system. We asked listeners for their thoughts on the purpose of libraries. Patricia Miller said, knowledge and free thinking provides a unique offline, hard print, turning the page of time, interactive experience with a Dewey Decimal added cherry on top. I remember learning how to use it and how excited I was to be unleashed on all the shelves. Candy Roberts said, at the most basic level, libraries provide access to resources and information to the public. The great ones, Corvallis has one of the best, offer community space and organized events, book clubs, reasons to connect, and non-book items to lend. On a similar note, Dave Dyke said, I think the physical library space is underappreciated as a place to bring together community, a so-called third space. I work from home, but will occasionally work from the library just to be around other people. I see tutors meeting students there. It's just a great place to bring people together in a positive way where everyone benefits. I also love that it brings a wide socioeconomic range of people together. Dave added, I think this service is especially relevant to many of us coming out of COVID. And as we navigate the rapid changes in our culture towards remote work and Zoom meetings generally... Physical library spaces are an important reminder that for many of us, getting together in person is really important. Gus Cole Crow wrote, Libraries in our society are one of relatively few spaces where a person can exist without money. I remember hearing about a pilot project in Salt Lake City where they had the central library open on a skeleton crew 24 hours a day and all the ways it benefited the community in ways they hadn't expected. A woman fleeing domestic violence on foot has a destination she could head to that she knows will be warm, dry, and safe. A person arriving by bus or train has a space after arriving no matter the time. People working downtown picked up holds before work, avoiding traffic they'd end up if they waited till after. And Noel Perry wrote that libraries support democracy and the pursuit of happiness by connecting people with content and resources that serves their needs and interests, empowering them to be an informed citizen through knowledge of current events, history, and the workings of the universe. A little while ago, we looked into how TriMet was dealing with safety concerns on Portland's public transit system. We asked people why they do or don't ride the bus. 
Matthew Riggs said, TriMet is why I moved here as a disabled person. It gives me freedom and is a vital labor vehicle for so many. Haters have an agenda. Leif Warner said, the max is way too overcrowded to get on from downtown anytime near rush hour. And I don't want to be exposed to, e.g., COVID. Riding a bike is faster and more pleasant. Sarah Arden wrote, I ride from Woodstock to downtown almost every day, five days a week. Sometimes I take the bus, sometimes I take the max. Otherwise, I bike or occasionally drive. Being able to live car-free is one of the reasons I moved here 20 years ago. But she went on to add, I have seen more drug use, smelled more unpleasant smells, and heard more loud and coherent outbursts in the past few years than in pre-pandemic times. Even so, I continue to ride. I believe in public transportation so much that nine years ago, I went through the training to become a bus driver. TriMet cut me loose near the end of my training, but I greatly appreciate what bus drivers have to manage on a day-to-day basis. Jesse Nielsen said, yes, we ride for a lot of reasons, but honestly, most of our trips are because it's one of my four-year-old's favorite activities. We have a frequent service bus stop at the end of the block. Sometimes we get on just to go for an adventure. We will connect to the Max, explore different bus lines and the streetcar. Anytime we head downtown or to the zoo or OMSI or to the sporting event, getting there using TriMet just adds to the adventure. Jesse went on to say, as soon as we get on the bus, there are smiles from ear to ear. He usually gets a high five from the driver and our neighbors on the bus often smile smile at him and even tell him jokes. He tells people about the various parks or stores we pass. Aside from avoiding the headaches that often accompany car travel within the city, assuming there's good service to our destination, it's just a great way to get to know our city and the people that make Portland what it is. Finally, we heard about a new course at Willamette University that teaches students how to talk about highly charged topics with people they may disagree with. We asked listeners how they handle difficult conversations. Stephen Vertle wrote, Often I try listening more than talking. There's also the technique of asking questions instead of stating my positions. It can draw out information while sounding less confrontational. Belinda Englund Hansen said, Agree to disagree and listen. Sometimes it might even mean that our disagreements become a bit less. I feel so many Americans are busy trying to convince and persuade others rather than developing trusting relationships where each person can grow and in some cases change their view on the world around them. C.A. Fry wrote, Depends on the topic. If it's something like MAGA versus our democracy, don't even try. Or how people deserve bodily autonomy versus forced birthers, no point. I used to think evidence and education would be enough to persuade someone, but that obviously doesn't work either. Jesse Gorman agreed. She said, the more complicated the topic usually gets more difficult. I am never trying to change someone's mind, but the trick is to be able to word your statement or question in a manner that is more neutral as opposed to being aggressive. Sometimes this is difficult. We always welcome your emails and comments in whatever form. Our address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. Our voicemail number is 503-293-1983. On Facebook, we're at OPBTOL. Thanks so much, Rolly. You're welcome, Allison. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. There are lots of ways you can get in touch with us if you have comments about what we've done or questions or suggestions for what we should cover. As Rolly said on Facebook, we're at OPBTOL, and you can always email us, thinkoutloud at opb.org. Thanks so much for tuning in today to OPB and KLCC. I'm Allison Frost. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation. Thank you.